Pride weekend. The great Van She got down into the street below. And you know you gotta go. Run a train from Dublin up to Sandy Road. Throwing pennies at the bridges down below. Sleeting snow. Say goodbye to Madame Joy. Dry your eyes for Madame Joy. Wonder why for Madame Joy. Hey, I'm 
the color of my skin. Some men are wise, some men are rich, some men with the shovel digging someone else's ditch. Sometimes that grows if you carry it too long. It will either bend or break your back, make you twice as strong. Twice as Church burned down. They were dancing with the devil, yeah. When the church burned down, church burned down. This is The Bee, and yes, you are tuned to Mutiny Radio, and you are listening to The Labor and Love Show, brought to you every Saturday morning between 10 and 12. Labor news, opinion, commentary, history, labor school. This is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Because labor is life, labor and love radio, where the labor meets the road. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our pride version of labor and love radio. We'll have a couple of uh, features about the Stonewall Rebellion, because rebellion is what it was. Uh, it's called a riot, I guess, by the mainstream press and by a lot of other people who don't know any better or who don't 
care, but it was a rebellion, one of those moments where a group of people all stand up together and look around and see how mighty they are. That opening set, We had When the Church Burned Down from a Crucial Slide guitar album. Let me let me look at that a minute. Called Crucial Slide Guitar Blues from Alligator Records. And that was the Kinsey Report. When the church burned down and when the saints go marching in, are you gonna be there? Because you know you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. It might be capital and it might be labor. But you got to serve somebody. Before that, we had Linda Tillery. Don't let nobody turn you around. Believe it. Linda Tillery, and uh, I want to get the name of uh, the Cultural Cultural Heritage Choir. And that was called Don't You Let Nobody Turn You Around. And before that, Van Morrison's beautiful, oh, we can call it as a poem in music, Madame George, reminiscences of a uh, drag queen, a trans person who lived in his neighborhood. Uh, Beautifully rendered. Okay, so, yeah, we promised stuff about Stonewall. Let's get right into it. First of all, kind of an overview of what happened there. And second, kind of a tongue-in-cheek attempt to answer the question, who threw the first rock at Stonewall? Okay. The Stonewall Rebellion. June, cities around the world throw giant pride parades, including the one here in Toronto. These parades began because of a massive riot in New York in 1969. That's the story of today. The uprising which sparked the modern gay rights movement. Hi, I'm Tristan. This is Step Back. Subscribe and hit the bell notification to get history every week. Just a heads up, this is going to be a story which contains violence directed at LGBTQ plus people. If that's not something you want to watch, I understand. History gets dark sometimes. Let's begin the story of the Stonewall Riots with a bit of context. We need to understand just what life was like to be an LGBTQ person in the mid 20th century. I think I mentioned in my last video on gay life in the US that there was a form of benign neglect towards gay communities which began to collapse in the 1930s. Well, after the chaos and upheaval of the Second World War, this got even worse. I think I already mentioned the Lavender Scare, a subject I'm covering next month. This crackdown was part of a post-war panic towards groups like 
homosexuals, communists, anarchists, or really anyone too different for Americans to be comfortable. During this period of anxiety, the US fired thousands of soldiers and hundreds of more government employees for practicing homosexuality. The FBI kept a list of known homosexuals and often used it for blackmailing purposes. They spent tons of manpower on hunting down gay establishments and cracked down on any space LGBTQ people were welcomed. Cross-dressing was outlawed. City governments would perform sweeps of known gay hangouts to hunt for people, and several professors were fired for being gay. This brutal attack on gay life in America resulted in many LGBTQ people experiencing violence, anxiety, humiliation, loss of jobs, and even prison time. This drove many LGBTQ people to enter the closet and hide a considerable part of their lives from the world. The American Psychological Association declared being gay was a mental disorder based on really nothing. It wouldn't be removed until the 1970s. Between this, supporting torture during the War on Terror, and having a hideous citation style puts the APA in my bad books. Seriously. Chicago or go home. This designation of homosexuality as a disorder allowed for the medical profession to force some unfortunate LGBTQ people into forced institutionalization, which isn't great even today, but this was back when they did electroshock therapy on the regular. Yes, I know they still do it today, but it's different and for different reasons. Though there was some pushback, with the help of some prominent communists. Homosexual rights activist groups began to pop up around the country, starting in LA and eventually making its way to the East Coast. The struggle was an uphill fight. The US Postal Service refused to mail their magazines, and threats from the government were ubiquitous. These organizations acted as a way for LGBTQ people to educate, organize, and debate how to fight for their civil rights. This was in the context of the 50s and 60s, with many other significant social justice projects, such as the civil rights and anti-war movements. A lot of these organizations, dubbed homophile groups, tried to play a form of respectability politics. This is when a group works to show how they can be just like the society oppressing them by showing off how ordinary they are. Usually this comes in the form of policing the behaviors of their own group. They wanted to ensure the cishet world that they were just average folks. This was an excellent idea and all, but in practice, this threw many LGBTQ people under the bus, namely those who didn't dress or act like the gender norms of the time. So many trans men and women, transvestites, and the more masculine women and effeminate men didn't get much help. And now we need to go back to New York. I mentioned in my last video that gay communities existed all over the megacity, but in the 50s and 60s, the gay community survived in the neighborhood of Greenwich Village. Beatniks like Ned Flanders' parents moved in and the place became a bohemian place of art and criticism of traditional society. In the early 60s, the city of New York's mayor tried to crack down on the network of underground gay clubs and bars. Police openly broke entrapment laws, often taking the flimsiest excuses to arrest anyone they could of secret homosexuality. What also threatened the community was many bars which LGBTQ people congregated in were losing their licenses. There really wasn't a good legal way to fight it, and these spaces were the only small pockets of safety where these people could be themselves. They weren't even nice bars. Most of them were owned by the mob who made more money extorting the wealthier customers than the booze. But Stonewall and other similar gay bars were all they had. 
One of these places was the Stonewall Inn. Converted into a gay bar in 1966, Stonewall functioned much like those gay clubs of the olden days. They paid off the police and operated without any liquor license to not tip anyone off. To stop undercover cops, you had to be a regular to get in. They even had special lights they'd turn on in case the fuzz was coming, so everyone in there knew to act as heterosexual as possible before the cops arrived. These were necessary precautions. The police raided on average about once a month, and they would come in to arrest anyone not wearing their assigned at birth gender's clothing, or sometimes even just not wearing enough of the right dress. Leading up to the riots, however, these raids were getting much more frequent. On June 28, 1969, eight police officers raided the Stonewall Inn. The owners were not tipped off about the raid. This raid didn't go like it usually did. The transvestites refused to go with the police officers to the bathroom to verify their genitals, and the clients refused to give up their IDs. Male police officers groped the lesbian customers. The patrol wagons used to take the arrested away took too long to arrive. Those sent out on the street refused to leave. They crowded around the car and watched this authoritarian power trip. Soon, more than a hundred people had gathered outside the Stonewall. Some customers performed for the police, egged on by the crowd. The first wagon arrived, but the second was delayed due to a radio problem. The number of bystanders now outnumbered those arrested and way outnumbered the police. As the police took away the employees, someone in the crowd screamed, gay power and we shall overcome slogans from the civil rights movement. The hostility against the fist of the state was getting hot. A police officer shoved a transvestite who then hit the officer back with her purse. People began to throw bottles at the police wagon. Police responded by attacking the crowd, who weren't going to take this attack on their community any longer. They tried to flip over the wagon. They began to throw coins at the cops, mocking their taking of bribes. They found cinder blocks and the police were overwhelmed. They barricaded themselves inside the stone wall, pulling guns on the crowd before backup arrived. Later reports say that this was not organized. This was a community which had had enough of the violence, repression, and hatred. I mean, what is a riot but the last desperate cry of the voiceless? The police were humiliated. This was the one oppressed group that they felt they could attack with impunity. Racial minority groups and protesters were already fighting back, and this was the time the LGBTQ communities did as well. The police arrested anyone they could get their hands on. They tried to form a phalanx to disperse the crowd, now openly mocking them. The chaos in the streets sometimes is referred to as almost cartoonish. They'd taunt the police, get out of sight, and appear again behind them like something out of Bugs Bunny. They clashed the police until almost four in the morning. The most prominent newspapers in New York had been called in to cover the riot, and news of the siege covered the city. Rumors and anxiety flooded Greenwich Village. Visitors to Stonewall wrote graffiti calling for gay rights. The next night, a second riot broke out. The same people were joined by new allies, tourists, and more than a few police provocateurs, who are police officers who join riots to provoke them into more violence and justify more draconian countermeasures. Thousands gathered around the stone wall, which, oddly enough, reopened that night. The police came again, and another street battle continued well into the night. Everyone was on edge over the next few days. Violence broke out again, there was looting, respectability politics people popped their monocles, it was a whole thing. 
Oh, hey, real quick before we continue, there's a link in the description for the Step Back Slack community if you want to join in. Stonewall is famous because of what came out of it. At a big gathering in Philadelphia, gay couples were spotted holding hands, and their by-the-books demonstrations got more press coverage than ever before. Playing by the CISET world's rules wasn't going to cut it anymore. The respectability politics was now too little and too slow for gay liberation. Those who fought the police at Stonewall or who were inspired by their act of defiance against repression were now committed. In their own words, you bet your sweet ass they're revolting. The local paper, The Village Voice in New York, refused to print the word gay in their text. So New York activists started their own newspaper simply called Gay. They began to borrow tactics from other major new left movements of the time. They soon organized under the banner of the Gay Liberation Front, the first group to use gay in the name. Other disaffected, more pragmatic members splintered off into the Gay Activist Alliance, because if you've ever hung out with activists, this is kind of inevitable. These groups would corner politicians and pressure the Democrats to stop the raids on gay nightclubs, after one raid left a young man impaled on a fence. Things got significant on the first anniversary of the riots. LGBTQ activist groups in major cities around the world participated in the first gay pride parades. This was no longer ashamed homophiles trying to fit in, but people proud to be different. Many newspapers reported it as a significant milestone after so much chaos one year ago. Gay activism was surging. What was once only a few groups were now many popping up all over the place. The march for gay liberation was on, and this was not just in America. Gay rights groups began to pop up all over the Western world. The movement had to contend with many different interests and their identity with other groups. Intersectionality was still a few decades off, so this quickly got heated. Second wave lesbian feminists began to have issues working with gay men, citing the same chauvinism as straight men, and these massive movements started to distance themselves from trans matters, claiming they were too hard to attain. However, there were successes. These groups successfully lobbied the American Psychiatric Association to delist homosexuality as a mental disorder. To this day, Stonewall stands as a turning point in the path of LGBTQ people in the West. It sparked a move towards major political victories, such as the spread of gay marriage around the West and the slow work to make their humanity known and accepted. I mean, hell, now even the corporate banks make themselves all rainbowed up for pride. Stonewall was significant enough that former President Barack Obama named the Stonewall Inn as a protected national monument. And you can go visit it to this day. I can't help but think of it in the context of the current Me Too movement happening right now. There's just a breaking point that, once passed, people begin to fight back in this fast turnaround. It's one of those dramatic moments in history where enough pressure and time breaks a dam. Of course, that's just me. If you have a different thought about the importance of linchpin moments like these, please leave a comment explaining your thoughts. Thank you to 12 Tone for the theme, and the patronage of Don and Carrie Johnson, Colbine Money, Scott Smith, and new $20 patron Martin King. Okay, that was kind of an overview uh, from Step Back History um, channel on YouTube. Just sort of an overview of what happened at Stonewall. Briefly, what happened was people stood up. I mean, like he says, that there had been a limit reached 
people had spent so much time being ashamed, being marginalized, um, being lobotomized, these hideous treatments. Uh, and they stood up. The cops came in and threw their weight around one too many times. And people had had enough. It was so obviously wrong, so obviously biased. And the police, of course, acted like, sometimes acted like goons, especially around gay people at that time. There was this myth that gay men were weak and wimpy. And that the lesbian, gay, trans people would just melt back into the background, get out of the way and stay quiet the way they always had. Well, that was all over. This one is kind of a tongue-in-cheek treatment of the, the question, who threw the first bottle at Stonewall, at the cops at Stonewall? This is called The Stonewall You Know is a Myth and That's Okay. It's a question that calls attention to overlooked LGBT elders, but also... Jason Mraz threw the first brick at Stonewall. <laughs> Judy Garland threw the first brick. Scarlett Johansson. It's become an inside joke about queer icons and straight allyship. 50 years after the police raided the Stonewall Inn and its patrons mounted a resistance on the street outside, I still didn't know the answer to this question. Who threw the first brick at Stonewall? What I did know is that I had heard this story over and over again. The gay rights movement was born in 1969 at a beloved gay bar called the Stonewall Inn. The Stonewall riot began when a drag queen, bereft by the death of Judy Garland, threw a brick at a police officer. The riot culminated in a Rockettes-style kickline of drag queens facing down tactical police in riot gear. It's a beautiful story, but it's not exactly true. So, I gathered some people who were at Stonewall in 1969, some historians who had spent years studying LGBT history, and some contemporary queer writers to ask them, what's wrong with this account of Stonewall? They helped me break it down bit by bit. It didn't begin at Stonewall. Before Stonewall, we had the Daughters of Belitis, we had the Mattachine Society. There was the Sip-In at Julius's. And the movement in the world dates back to 1897 in Berlin with the founding of Magnus Hirschfeld's organization, which was the first gay rights group. So if gay rights didn't begin at Stonewall, why was Stonewall important? Because it led to the creation of the gay liberation movement. Gay Liberation Front was born out of the ashes of Stonewall. Uh, gay Liberation Front is the, literally why we have everything we have today. They planned a march on the first anniversary of Stonewall. And people forget that there were three pride parades. I was at the one in Los Angeles in 1970. We had a big jar of Vaseline on a float. It was a really in-your-face float. Oh, wow. Now here's a fundamental question about Stonewall. Was it a riot? And what we did is we were cheering and dancing in the street. That's not a riot. It was just a loud and bawdy, fun group of guys until it turned into a riot. It is called a riot, an uprising, a rebellion. I like the word rebellion, not overthrow the government rebellion. Rebellion from within. 
Next, was the Stonewall Bar as idyllic as some media portrays it to have been? The Stonewall Inn was a safe haven for the queer community. But it was a dump. It was a hellhole. Dirty, rundown, mafia run. A mafia sleazy bar. And they watered down drinks. Watered down drinks. There was a much better bar called the Cherry Lane. The tenth of always. Cookies. So the Stonewall Inn was neither New York's only gay bar, nor an especially beloved institution. Now, let's talk about that drag queen who started it all. They said that she threw the first shot glass at Stonewall, and it was the shot glass heard around the world. One of the persistent myths about Stonewall is that Marsha threw the first cocktail glass. Marsha herself said in an interview that I did with Marsha, I didn't get there until 2. I was uptown, and I didn't get downtown until about 2 o'clock, because when I got downtown, the place was already on fire, and it was a raid already. Marsha P. Johnson's friend and fellow activist Sylvia Rivera is also sometimes credited with starting Stonewall. Sylvia Rivera is known for throwing the first bottle at the Stonewall riots. Sylvia Rivera herself said in 2001, I have been given the credit for throwing the first Molotov cocktail, but I always like to correct it. I threw the second one. I did not throw the first one. First of all, that comment was probably tongue-in-cheek. Second of all, it's not certain that Molotov cocktails were thrown at all. Regardless of what Rivera and Johnson did at Stonewall, their impact on the trans and gay movements can't be overstated. When I see people saying Marsha and Sylvia were the ones who threw the first bricks, I want to remember them in a way that feels honest because their legacies extend far beyond that night. However, there was a gender nonconforming person that several witnesses credit with catalyzing Stonewall. She was very butch and she was tough and the police were being rough with her and she was really fighting back. We have four independent accounts who said that this woman's fight with the police is what tipped the scales and set it all off. She uh, called out to the crowd, what are you doing? Why are you just standing there? Why don't you do something? Some people say that woman was Stormy DeLarvier, a lesbian who worked as a bouncer at the time. DeLarvier sometimes took credit and sometimes denied her role, but so far there's been no conclusive proof of who exactly that butch woman at Stonewall was. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Judy Garland. Judy Garland's funeral took place at Campbell's funeral home on the afternoon before the events at Stonewall. The patrons of the Stonewall used their grief over Judy's death to rise up and fight back. But were the two events related? The worst question that people ask about Stonewall is whether it was caused by the death of Judy Garland. If one looks at the accounts published in 1969, there's only one account that mentioned Stonewall and Judy Garland, and that was written by a right-wing colonists to mock the movement. You're trivializing our anger and oppression of 2,000 years to a singer. So I went to Judy Garland's and a lot of Stonewall Queens did. Oh, it was like Noah's Ark. All of Judy's fans. God bless Judy Garland, but no, she was not the cause of the Stonewall Riot. No. So now, let's talk about that brick. One of the most derided representations of the first brick came from the 2015 movie Stonewall. Gay power! All anyone wants to talk about is who threw the first brick. Who threw the first brick? People climbing, I threw the first brick. First off, it asks were bricks thrown? Where were those bricks found? Apparently there was a construction site that had a pile of bricks. I heard that last week. Did they show you a picture of that construction site? It's possible they were pulling rocks from the street. I haven't determined where that would have been unless it was in the park. If there's a tree pit, they're usually lined with something. Around this 
tree, there were these stones. I pulled up the stones. I know I threw stones. I don't know if I threw a brick. I doubt it. I think I was a stones man. So objects were thrown that may or may not have been bricks. But amidst all this chaos in the streets, did they really form a kick line while facing down police in riot gear? No, there was not a kick line at Stonewall. There were many kick lines at Stonewall. And I'll be glad to give you the lyrics. We are the Stonewall girls. We wear our hair in curls. We don't wear underwear. To show our pubic hair. It was done to the, the tune of uh, the Howdy Doody theme. It's Howdy Doody time. You're right, it is. All right, so we've worked out a framework for what happened at Stonewall that many people can maybe mostly agree on. But why does this even matter? Why are we nitpicking this to death? Because when we talk about what happened at Stonewall 50 years ago, we're also talking about issues the LGBT community is still wrestling with today, namely transphobia and racism. There's one graphic I'm thinking about in particular, trans women of color throwing bricks at cops gave me the right to get married. I think a lot of people cling on to these narratives because trans women of color are often already sidelined. I mean, there were some individual people of color, but it was not a, a group of trans people of color who started the writing. If, if people start telling stories, not as they were, but as they would like them to be, that procedure can be used by anybody for any purpose. So I think that we need to be consistent in the truth. If we are demanding that our history be respected, then we have to respect it ourselves. You have to uh, apply the same criteria to our history that it be worthwhile, that it be accurate, that it be well researched. We should recognize our warts as well as our, our flowers, as it were. I mean, I think historical erasure is real. How do we tell a history of something when our lives aren't in archives? Speculative fiction and historically informed fiction to me are ways to answer that question. And it doesn't have to be true to be meaningful. Stonewall was a messy evening. LGBT histories are very messy. I think naming that doesn't take away from the importance of what happened. I don't think anyone threw the first brick at Stonewall. And at this point, I don't care who threw the first brick. Oh, I don't think it matters. And it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. It's okay that we don't know. If it wasn't a brick, it was a rock. If it wasn't a rock, it was a purse. If it wasn't a purse, it was a shoe. If it wasn't a shoe, it was a glass. If it wasn't a glass, it was a dirty look. It was all of those things. It wasn't just that day, it was days before, and it was many years after. It's 50 years later, and we still can't agree on exactly what happened that night. But that's all right. Stonewall was about people reclaiming their own narratives from those that told them they were sick or pitiful or didn't even exist. Part of telling your own story means living openly and partying at parades, but it also means contending with other people's versions of that story, even if theirs doesn't match perfectly with yours. As Chrysanthemum Tran said, that can be messy, and that's okay. I love a messy party. Hey, this is Shane. I produced this video. We've spent a month covering Pride, so check out all of our coverage. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. So that's our uh, Stonewall double header there. Let's play some music. Um... Read.
from Miami, FLA Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side She was everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go do 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 here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said hey babe take a walk on the wild side I said hey Joe take a walk on the wild side Sugar Pump Ferry came and hit the streets looking for soul food and a place to eat to the Apollo You should have seen him go, go, go They said, hey sugar Take a walk on the wild side I said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Alright Jackie is just speeding away Thought she was James Dean for a day Then I guess she had to crash Valium would have helped that patch I said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side I said, hey honey Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls say Do, 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 Liberation when 
Then all the witches were mad and moonstruck when the shrinking and the shocking and the mocking were rife. We still found each other, the ones in the life. There was a time before demonstrations when the queens and fairies were shy and fearful. We ran and we hid from the fist and the knife. And we still found each other, the ones in the life. Do you know Dorothy? Do you have the time? Have you got a light, dear? Change for a dime? Do you come here often? No, I see what you mean. I know a tavern where we won't be seen. There was a time before celebration when all my sisters were ghosts and shadows. Every femme had a butch, every husband a wife, and we still found each other, the ones in the life. Do you know Dorothy? what you mean. I know a tavern where we won't be seen. There was a time back before Stonewall. We heard the jokes and we joined the laughter. We lied and we passed and avoided the strife. But we still found each other, the ones in the life. We still found each other. There was a time before liberation when all Yeah. 
They like to take all this money from Sand Build Big Universities to study it. Sing Amazing Grace all the way to the Swiss Bank. Whoa, ain't coming back. Before the pride comes back. Hey, hey, hey. Ain't no coming back, baby. Ain't no coming back. They got some beautiful people out there, man. They could be a terror to your mind. They'll show you how to hold your tongue. They got mystery written all over their foreheads. They kill their babies in the crib. It's something, it's something that you never ever see. Oh, they can exalt you up and bring you down the main roof. Turn you into anything they want you to be. Oh, ain't coming back to put a price. Ain't coming back.
Lou Reed there. Lou Reed singing uh, at uh, Dylan's 30th anniversary of something. Uh, the Foot of Pride. There ain't no turning back when the Foot of Pride comes down. Preceded by the 10% group singing Before Stonewall and Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. I love those two because they they explore the pain and sadness and the kind of um, alienation, complete and total alienation when you have to hide that part of you that's so important, okay? That part of you that reaches out to the world, that that wants to communicate, that wants to make connections, that wants to find love. And you have to to make concessions. You have to compromise. Can't be yourself. Every every husband has a wife, Reed says. All right, we're going to turn now to radio labor, labor news from all over the world. Remember, the only time you're not alone is when you stand up. And if you don't stand up, you'll be counted as standing up for sitting down. Radio Labor. Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 28, 2019. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a new global law to help stop violence and harassment in the workplace. Things get even worse for Zimbabwe workers. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. Put yourself in the shoes of a hostess who's working in a restaurant who is assaulted on a regular basis, or a hotel worker continuously bombarded with sexual advances when they're doing their work. Unions around the world are celebrating a new international law which could dramatically reduce violence and harassment at work. The new law, called a convention, has been adopted by the United Nations International Labor Organization. The ILO sets minimum working standards for the world. It is operated as a tripartite organization with representatives of governments, employer groups, and labor unions. Convention 190 Against Violence and Harassment at Work was negotiated at the ILO conference in mid-June 2019. The worker representative on the committee which negotiated the convention was Marie Clark Walker. Ms. Walker is the secretary-treasurer of the Canadian Labour Congress. I asked Ms. Walker to describe Convention 190. Convention 190 is the instrument that will look at violence and harassment in the world of work. It is a convention that will apply to all countries who ratify this particular convention. It protects all workers. And when I say all workers, I do mean all workers in the world of work. 
the importance of that particular phrasing is because oftentimes when the ILO or other international bodies negotiate conventions, it usually protects a group of workers in particular sectors. This particular convention protects everybody from workers in the formal sector to the informal economy, in public, private sector, in urban and rural areas. It looks at the impact of violence and harassment from a gender perspective as well as from a perspective uh, that looks at how discrimination and inequality also plays roles in particular with particular workers. Again, those we call vulnerable groups or groups in situations of vulnerability. This is the first time as well that a convention stipulates that it's a right. So this is the right to a world of work free from violence and harassment. And that is a huge accomplishment to say that all workers in the world, regardless of what country, regardless of where you are, regardless of what you do, have a right to a world of work free from violence and harassment. Why should countries ratify Convention 190? Well, as was said several times in the negotiations, nobody, nobody wants violence and harassment to be in their workplace, to be in their country, to be in their society. So it's really important that countries take this, all of this into consideration when dealing with their workers. Nobody as I said before, wants to be in a situation where you have to deal with violence and harassment on a regular basis, much less, you know, irregular basis. So it's important that countries ratify this to keep workers safe. So at the end of the day, this particular convention is about treating people the way that you want to be treated, with dignity and respect, no matter where, where it is they work. What happens after a country has ratified a convention such as Convention 190? This is this is something that I learned this year as well. So you adopt the convention and the recommendation, and I must say it's it's two instruments, not just one. It's the convention and the recommendation gives guidelines as to how governments can put policies in place or what should be put in place to mitigate the risks of violence and harassment. But what happens is the convention itself is presented to each country's parliament. And then the parliament would decide whether or not the country will then ratify. Once the convention is ratified, it usually comes into force a year after ratification. And then the countries will commit to applying the convention into their national laws and practice. And so the hope is that most countries, if not all countries, will ratify it. So it does come into force in their country and then the, they can then put in policies, procedures, regulations, legislation to make sure that all of the instruments are implemented. What can unions do to help make sure their country ratifies the new convention, Convention 190 Against Violence and Harassment at Work? One of the things is to continue to lobby governments in terms of how important ratification of this particular instrument is. But the other pieces share with government officials, whether it's at the federal level, the local level, the provincial level, state level, whatever it is you have, all the various levels, stories, real-life experiences of workers in particular sectors, in particular occupations, and show them how 
violence and harassment has affected them. And so, therefore, saying to governments, putting in place legislation, regulation, policies, procedures, etc., will keep the majority of workers in whatever country you're talking about safe. My name is Barbara Gwangwara Tanyanyiwa. I'm the National Secretary for the Women's Committee at Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions. I'm also the President of Commercial Workers Union of Zimbabwe. The situation for working people in Zimbabwe is growing even worse. The government of Emerson Muna Ningagwa has implemented financial measures that are increasing the suffering of people in the country. I talked to Barbara Gwangara Tanyaniwa and asked her to describe the situation. At the moment, Zimbabwe is in the economic crisis and workers are at the, the hardest hit by the policies, the said policies. Maybe to start with, I'll talk about the, the, the monetary policies, that is the, the ones that was introduced in October and the current one that has just been introduced. The government just formulates the policies, especially the Minister of Finance, he just formulates these policies in, in form of a statutory instrument without even consulting anyone, even the stakeholders. I think you know the workers, the labor, we are a stakeholder, but we are not even consulted. So at the end of the day, they just come up with policies that suit themselves. And these policies, they end up by hitting the workers hard, like the, the current one where our salaries were in U.S. dollar in October, but when this policy was introduced, the monetary policy was introduced, all our monies were turned into what is called now RTGS dollar. You do not understand this one, and it's real-time gross, what, what, I will not understand this. It's not money, but they are transfers. So all the monies were turned into RTGS dollar, and for your own information, the worker who was earning 300 US dollars today is earning 30 US dollars because the rate it, the rate has fallen drastically. The rate is now 1 is to 10, which is the black market rate. We yet, whereas the government is saying the rate is 1 is to 5, which is uh, just on paper. So this is the situation that you are faced in as workers. Everything is going up, the prices are going up, the price of fuel is going up, the price of bread, <clears throat> the basic commodities, you name them back, they are just going up and uh, they are now out of reach of many, many workers. You have accused Zimbabwe's security forces of using rape and torture to silence women in the country. How widespread is this problem? We only experience this, much when there are protests or demonstrations. It's a way of silencing uh, people, especially the women. You know, when a woman is raped, her dignity is taken away. You know the, the body of a woman. You know how we, we value our bodies as women. Once you harass me or you sexually abuse me, that dignity is taken away from me. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a tiny sample of the hundreds of union news stories in 31 languages that were added to our site each day last week. 
Our top story sections included links to coverage of the general strike in Uruguay, the new ILO Convention on Workplace Harassment and Violence, and the murder of a trade union activist in the Philippines. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Workers at a gas plant in Australia marked uh, two years on the picket line. Their walkout began when their employer terminated their agreement and demanded huge wage rollbacks. Taiwanese flight attendants maintained their picket lines as their employer escalated its legal battle to end their strike. Though not unionized, workers at an online furniture retailer in the United States walked off the job to protest their employer's involvement in the imprisonment of children of asylum seekers. Chile was a hotspot this week as teachers joined copper miners on picket lines while tens of thousands of Walmart workers geared up for a national walkout. Kenyan construction workers ended a three-week-long walkout with an out-and-out victory for the union. A strike by the women who clean government buildings in Spain ended in a victory for the workers who won a wage increase and improved workplace safety. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, tow truck drivers were refusing calls to breakdowns as they protested the lack of security on the country's main highway. 18,000 Indian aerospace workers downed tools and 500 began a hunger strike over wages on Monday while car assembly plant workers in the same country walked out when a union activist was sacked. 10,000 Irish healthcare workers struck Wednesday as they tried to get back wages lost to austerity policies over the past 10 years. And teachers in Costa Rica were striking to protest the plan to ban education strikes. Our Working Women page, now available in eight languages, included coverage of a Chinese court decision which found that women were routinely having their basic labor rights violated by employers, and why organizing is proving to be the most important tool for women achieving dignity in and outside of the workplace in India. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards Magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the concerns Australian airline pilots have about changes to their hours of work and the dangers faced by South African police officers. Currently, Labor Start is running four online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here are Street Dreamer and OBU with We Shall Not Be Moved. Though we stand together, united to fight it The sun shines outside, but inside We're tired of the darkness, hard times and sacrifice Leaving life miles away with tears on each family's face All we want is what's right, and what's right is our rights Decent life, decent wages Something for the kids to find better ways with Trying to afford education Taking something more than you came with Ten hours a day trying to reach a home of greatness Short of modern day slavery Times are changing, and we're just trying to change them So we hold hands in the fight Walking straight with their hands up what we're asking for is justice Together we'll weather any storm And we won't be moved Together we can and together we will So forever this is our song 
remain poor When we ask for a little more They seem to ignore That we picked their food Took care of their kids We cleaned the office We made their profits We are the teachers The nurses The plumbers We work the winters And into the summers We built the junction We work construction They need us So they can function We shall not be moved Until we get dignity Justice and respect And that's it. International labor news you can use. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. I'll introduce to you a man that is a credit to our red, white, and blue. His head is made of lumber and solid as a rock. He is a common worker and his name is Mr. Block. And Block, he thinks he may be president someday. Oh, Mr. Block, you were born by mistake. You take the cake, you make me ache. Tie a rock on your block and then jump in the lake. Kindly do that for liberty's sake. Yes, Mr. Block was lucky. He found a job by G. The shark got $7 for job and fare and fee. They shipped him to a desert, they dumped him with his truck And when he tried to find his job, he sure was out of luck He shouted, that's too raw, I'll fix them with the law Oh, Mr. Block, you were born by mistake You take the cake You make me ache, tie a rock on your block And then jump in the lake Kindly do that for liberty's sake Poor block, he died one evening I'm very glad to state He climbed the golden ladder Up to the pearly gate He said, oh, Mr. Peter One word I'd like to tell I'd like to meet the Astorbilts and John D. Rockefeller. Old Pete said, is that so? You'll meet them down below. Oh, Mr. Block, you were born by mistake. You take the cake, you make me ache. Tie a rock on your block and then jump in the lake. Kindly do that for liberty.
Bob Marley there with 400 years, and we're going to uh, talk about that, about reparations recently uh, have been brought out into the discussion prominently. What about reparations? Before that, before Bob Marley, We had Mr. Block, sung by the redoubtable Joe Glazer, labor minstrel, singing a song written by the great Joe Hill. And Mr. Block, the people who support Mr. Trump, otherwise good people. I can't believe how casually people say, yeah, well, I might vote for Trump. <laughs> This, to me, is like saying, uh, yeah, I might vote for Satan. Okay, before that, at the end of Radio Labor, we have We Shall Not Be Moved, a traditional union song, and I'd love to get the name of that group. I'll have to check that out and see exactly uh, who that group was. Mr. Trump... Well, let's get to reparations. Of course, reparations now are being discussed. Reparations for to recompense African-American people for slavery. And sometimes it's hard to remember or feature how much of the U.S. economy was tied to slavery in the uh, first half of pre-Civil War America, uh, the slave trade was immense. And even when it was outlawed, people were still smuggling slaves. But if you had money, if you were a young person, had money, that's what you would do. You would go south and... Uh, buy maybe buy a gang of slaves or um, buy a cotton farm and invest in some aspect of the slave trade. A good book you might uh, look up is The Half of It Ain't Been Told, which really goes into how much of America was built by slave labor and or Profits from slave labor. A lot of our modern heroes, all the presidents up until uh, Monroe, the first five, six presidents were slave owners. And the nation thrived on slave labor. You could buy a bond that represented the amount of work done by a normal slave in whatever, one hour, one year, uh, th that's how it was. So there have been various proposals <clears throat> for reparations in the same way that Japanese American people were granted a certain amount of money to recompense them for their experiences in concentration camps in World War II where Japanese-American people were moved 
solely, solely because of their ethnicity. They were Japanese, therefore they needed to be thrown in prison because they might blow up something or they might sabotage something or they might give away secrets. Not one case of this was ever found. And when the <clears throat> one of the government officials was braced with this, when a, a reporter or somebody made that comment, they said, well, the fact that there has been no sabotage is proof that it it's you know bound to happen in other words duh i am stupid i will say every dumb thing in my in my mind now mr trump has recently talked about he's going to unleash the ice and he's going to deport millions of of illegal quote-unquote, illegal people. This harkens back to 1931, the time a president deported one million Mexican-Americans for supposedly stealing, stealing U.S. jobs. People were recruited, brought here. They need to work like everybody else. Okay. This is a little doctor. President Trump made during his campaign in often harsh tones was that he'd crack down on illegal immigration from Mexico. Today, I want to talk about another president who targeted Mexican immigrants decades earlier, Herbert Hoover. That shameful time in history was buried and forgotten. That is, until a relatively unknown politician named Joseph Dunn then a state senator from California, began researching the events more than 15 years ago. Dunn was horrified by what he found. It all started in 1931, at the height of the Great Depression, when Hoover launched a program that resulted in the illegal deportation of nearly 2 million people. Of those people, Dunn found that around 60% were U.S. citizens. The so-called repatriation program included passing local laws forbidding government employment to anyone of Mexican descent, even legal permanent residents and U.S. citizens. President Hoover's slogan for the program was American Jobs for Real Americans. Dunn says that was code for getting rid of people of Mexican descent who weren't considered true Americans. The Hoover administration began reimbursing localities for enacting his program, and major companies, including Ford, U.S. Steel, and the Southern Pacific Railroad, colluded with the government by laying off thousands of workers. According to Francisco Balderrama, the co-author of a book about the program, Mexicans were scapegoated for the Great Depression. Officials claimed that deportation of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans would create more jobs. They also said this group was overwhelming welfare offices and charities. But that claim was totally false, as Mexicans made up less than 10% of relief recipients nationwide. Local law enforcement started rounding up people in parks, hospitals, markets, and social clubs, cramming them onto chartered trains and depositing them across the border. 
fear began overtaking Mexican communities nationwide in the early 1930s. On February 26, 1931, hundreds gathered at La Placita Park in the heart of Los Angeles' Mexican community. They were enjoying a sunny afternoon. Then panic swept through the crowd. A large group of plainclothes officers entered the park armed with guns and batons, and dozens of flatbed trucks circled the perimeter. According to Dunn's research, officers rounded up anyone with brown skin. About 400 people were lined up and asked to show proof of legal entry and citizenship of the United States. Immigrants and citizens alike who could not produce proper documentation were detained. Dunn said some were put on the trucks and sent to the city's main railroad station. Once there, they were ordered onto trains and taken deep into Mexico. Los Angeles authorities planned the raid at La Placita Park as a scare tactic to motivate the population to flee to Mexico, even though many of them were born in the United States. The deportations had traumatizing, lifelong effects, especially on children who only knew the United States as their home. With so many Mexican and Mexican-Americans forced to leave the country, there were few voices protesting this mass removal. And trade unions, the Communist Party, and other groups protecting workers were all in favor of saving jobs for whites in the United States. The deportations continued well into the 1930s, even after Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office in January 1933. Roosevelt never officially revoked the American Jobs for Real Americans campaign, but by FDR's presidency, it was being carried out solely by local governments that acted on their own, though his administration did nothing to stop them. The United States has never apologized for its treatment of Mexican immigrants and citizens during the Great Depression. In 2005, Dunn tried to do something about it. He put forward legislation in the California State House calling for his own state to officially apologize. It was called the Apology Act. The legislation was enacted the following year. The law also called for installing a memorial where the raid on La Placita took place in Los Angeles. As for the Apology Act itself, Dunn says it was mostly symbolic. Now no one, he said, can say it never happened. I'm Mike Rosenwald. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Diane Bernard, who reported this story for The Washington Post. And for more forgotten stories from history, visit WashingtonPost.com slash Retropod. One million workers sent back to Mexico, whether they were Mexican or not. It was kind of a uh, prelude to the treatment of Japanese. In other words, if you looked brown (laughs) to some cop, you could be detained. You could be sent back to Mexico. That's like saying to me, uh, you can get sent back to Ireland or you could get sent back to Greece because your mother was Greek. 
want to get back to reparations. I kind of dropped the ball on that. And what I want to point out is reparations for whom, you know, and why. This is about World War II and how American companies shamelessly, shamelessly appealed for compensation of buildings in Europe, in Germany, that they, they were, that belonged to them. They were doing business in Germany. After the war, GM and the other American corporations that had done business in Germany were not only not punished, okay, now we're talking about Grandpa Bush here, Avril Harriman, but even compensated for damages suffered by their German subsidiaries as a result of Anglo-American bombing raids. General Motors received $33 million and ITT $27 million from the American government as indemnification. The Ford Verka had suffered relatively little damage during the war and had received more than $100,000 in compensation from the Nazi regime itself. Ford's branch in France, meanwhile, had managed to wrest an indemnification of $38 million francs from the Vichy regime. Ford nevertheless applied in Washington for $7 million worth of damages and after much wrangling received a total of $785,000 for its share of allowable losses sustained by Ford Velka and Ford of Austria during the war, which the company has acknowledged in its recently published report. Okay. So compensation, reparations, you know, money from the U.S. government for destruction of property. We can give money to big corporations that actually did business with our opponents, our enemies, the hated fascists during the war. But we can't give money to compensate the people who built this country with their labor. U.S. soldiers who hit the beach and D-Day, big celebrations about D-Day recently, huh? Soldiers who hit the beaches at D-Day found that they were fighting against tanks and motorized units and equipment that was made by U.S. companies and sold to Germany. Every once in a while, the, the cover is lifted from this pretense of the U.S. fighting Germany in World War II. Well, the companies didn't fight. And after the war, 
instead of going after those people who had been doing business with Hitler, it was the business people who were on the offensive, backed up by the government, accusing communists, people who had fought with the U.S. ally, who, who Soviet Russia was a U.S. ally. So it was these people we went after. Not the business people. So much for reparations, okay? Reparations? For whom? For what? The companies get them. President Hoover. Okay, I sent you this message last week. This is from Labor Start. For years, contractual workers at the Holum, Holsim cement plant in Davao, that's in the Philippines, have demanded regular employment in line with Philippine law. Last year, they filed a complaint with the Department of Labor and Employment. But in March this year, 140 contract workers were laid off, while non-union workers were offered new employment contracts. Since then, the workers have been picketing the factory, but in May they found out that the owner of the plant, multinational cement giant Lafarja Holsom, is planning on selling the factory to notoriously anti-union Filipino conglomerate San Miguel. On May Day, the workers' picket line was violently attacked by thugs, and the union is convinced that Holcim is responsible for the attack. If you've got 40 seconds, watch this video about the struggle. Let's see if we can do that. It's not very long. Solidarity. H-O-L-C-I-M Davao, D-A-V-A-O Place in the Philippines Well, that's just about all we've got time for Again uh, We've got more than we have time for, which I guess is a good sign. And uh, it's time to say goodbye. Have a happy Pride Day. Um, let's see, James Brown. Go out with King Heroin, huh? Mm -hmm.
Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Americans, lady Americans. This is the bee telling, reminding you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else works for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, you're on the menu. I had a dream the other night, and I was sitting in my living room. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. I dream I walk Remember, it's not another worker's fault that you're not getting paid enough to live on. And I found out it was hell. It's your employer's fault. You're not into politics. I came to this country. Landlord is. Ever since then, I've been insurance agent is. Your My bosses, and they use their political power every day to, taste. to raise your rent, power, to raise your payments for medical care, and you'll know it too. I can make a mere schoolboy forget his books. Hello to everybody out there. Hope you're having a good day and good work. For the rest of his life. We'll talk. Next I can make a man forsake his country and flag. Make a girl sell her body for a five dollar bag. Some think my adventures are joy and a thriller, but I'll put a gun in your hand and make you trouble. In cellophane bags, I found my way to heads of state, to children at play. I finance in China, ran in Japan. I'm respected in Turkey and I'm legal in Siam. I take my addicts and make them steal, borrow, beg. Then they search for a band and the arm of the leg. So be you Italian, Jewish, black or mixed, I can make the most fertile of men forget their sex. So now, so now my man, you must you know, do your best to keep up your habit until your arrest. Now the police have taken you from under my way. Think they dare defy me, I who am king. Now, you must lie in that county jail where I can't get to you by visit or mail. So squirm with discomfort, wiggle and cough. <coughs> Six days of madness, <laughs> and you might throw me off. Curse me in name, defy me in speech, but you'd pick me up right now if I were in your reach. All through your center. You become resolved to your fate. Fear not, young man or woman. I'll be waiting at the gate. And don't be afraid. Don't run. I'll not chase. Sure, my name is Helwin, and you'll be back for a taste. Behold, you're hooked. Your foot is in the stirrup. And make haste, mount the steed, and ride him well. For the white horse of Helwin.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> My friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy 